The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So we are in the series in Genesis. I'm going to encourage you to turn your Bibles to to chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the last four verses of the third chapter today. We're calling this series The Beginning. Last week, if you were here, we looked at what we called the sentence and the seed. And we saw last week as God spoke his words of sentence over the serpent and his four words of judgment over Adam and Eve. And in the middle of all that we saw this hope of a promised seed. Last week the judgment that God spoke over Adam and Eve was was pain in childbearing, conflict in marriage, pain in their labor and death. But in the middle of all of it we saw that there was this promise of a seed. There was this hopeful hopeful tone, Genesis 3.15, where God spoke that one day there would be a seed that would come through Eve that would crush the head of the serpent. So there was hope. And now as we get into these last few verses of the third chapter, we talked a lot about this this week as a staff and as a preaching team. The word we use to describe uh, the language that we're going to see in these next four verses is fantastical. It's marvelous. It's fantastic. It's bizarre. It's astonishing. It's strange. There's so much going on in these passages. It's interesting. And, And I studied this text and studied this text and studied this text. And I realized that what we're about to read can be a, a, a theological well that has no bottom. And I spent so much of my time this week plumbing the depths of these four verses. And I found myself saying, Lord, is this helpful for the people? If I, if we go down this, this, Maybe it's a rabbit hole. Maybe it's a distraction. Am I adding to the word? Am I just subtracting from the word? The desire for me today as we look at this text is to stay on the line of Scripture. This is, kind of, this, is the, this is the task of any preacher, any time a preacher stands up behind the pulpit to communicate God's word. The Scripture has something it's trying to communicate. And sometimes in our attempt to make it more interesting or to make it more convicting, we can add to what the text is saying. We can go above the line of Scripture. We shouldn't do that. And sometimes because it's difficult, it's hard, it's fantastical, we can, dissuade, we can leave things off, we can go below the line of Scripture and not communicate the things God wants us to in the text. My hope today, my prayer today, is as we journey through these four verses, is that I'm able to stay on the line of Scripture. Genesis 3, verse 21 through 24. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take hold also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24. He drove out the man and to the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. As we take a look at these four verses today, we're going to see three things. I want to give you a preview of what we're going to cover in the next few moments. We're going to see that in his gracious love, the Lord God provides covering for Adam and Eve. We see this in verse 21. We're going to see that in his gracious love, the Lord God prevents them from living forever. We're going to see this in verses 22 and 23. And then in verse 24, we're going to see that the Lord God, in his gracious love, prohibits them from returning to the garden. And my big idea today, as we look at this passage, is that in his gracious love, the Lord God does not give up on humanity. In his gracious love, the Lord God does not give up on humanity. Would you pray with me? 
Father, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and and tender, responsive hearts to respond in obedience to the very thing you're going to communicate to us today through the preaching of your word. God, I pray that you would get me out of the way. I pray that as we open up your word, it would be your words that would go out to your people, that we might encounter you, worship you, exalt you, be obedient to you in this place today. God, have your way with us over these next few moments. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's Valentine's Day. It's Love Day. Who here got a Valentine this morning from their loved one? Well, I have not yet given my wife her Valentine's. I don't know what it's going to be yet. I have to go to Walmart still, but eventually I will get her a Valentine. Just teasing. But I do, it has me reflecting on love, on my love relationship with my wife, Becky. We've been married 22 years, or going on 22 years, known each other for 27 and a half years. We've been a couple for 24 years. And I was remembering kind of our courtship. Some of you have heard me tell this story in the past. Becky was the very first college girl I ever met. I'd been on campus just minutes when I was walking up the steps of a dorm room and she was walking down and I was obsessed immediately. Uh, I creepily followed Becky around for the next three and a half years, uh, just happening to be in the same place in classes as her for the next three and a half years. Yes, it is a bit of stalking. Uh, but I just wanted to be by her and I was so nervous and insecure. I could never really like, let her know of my intention, but I just was wanted to be near her. I remember she got hurt her junior year of college, blew her knee out playing basketball, and she was in the training room like every day kind of rehabbing her knee. So every day I found some excuse to be in the trainer's room just to be by Becky Douglas. Uh, I wanted to be with her. And then by some miracle of miracles after three and a half years of quasi-stalking, she asked me on our first date... And it was amazing, could not believe it. Uh, And just like that, my wife and I were a couple. I was never brave enough to ask her on a date, kind of just creepy enough to linger in the shadows. And then she actually had the bravery to ask me on our first date. And so we started dating. And then our last year of college, she was student teaching in Wisconsin. I was back in our college in North Dakota. I was playing football. She was being a grown-up. And I remember somewhere along the line, I decided to start dating another girl. Now, this is before I was walking with Jesus, so don't hate me too hard right now. Uh, So I started dating this other girl, and uh, I didn't really tell Becky about this decision. I kind of thought, no harm, no foul. And, uh, and then, you know, because we Becky and I weren't, like, we were seeing each other. It was bizarre. You know how those early relationships can be. And I didn't think it was a big deal. But then my, my new girlfriend somehow got a hold of one of my football jerseys. And at a home football game, she decided to wear my jersey, along with three or four of the other football players' girlfriends, No harm, no foul. Becky was in Wisconsin. But then the sports photographer took a photograph of these girls wearing the jerseys of their boyfriends on the front page of the newspaper. So Becky's friends sent her a photograph of my new girlfriend wearing my jersey, and it did not end well, and it was painful. Uh, Becky promptly called me up, ended the relationship, and I was dating this other girl who I didn't even like, and I, it, it, that's where the story could have ended, right? Our love story could have ended there. It could have been a fling. But, but then Becky just hatched a plan. Her plan was to come back to Jamestown, even though she didn't need to. She was going to come back to college, take some throwaway classes, compete in her last year of track and field, win me back, get me to be putty in her hands, and then destroy me uh, and break my heart and win when all was said and done. Uh, and, and I'm really thankful we've been married 22 years, but every now and again, Becky reminds me that she still has not completed her plan. And uh, she is one of these days going to crush my heart. <laughs> but the truth is, what a gracious woman. I was a foolish, selfish, dumb, 
kid who didn't understand what I had in front of me, but now I do. But in her gracious love, Becky didn't give up on me, and she didn't give up on us, and I'm really thankful for that. On Valentine's Day, as we consider our love relationships, we recognize, we all recognize, that every human relationship is wrought with selfishness, with challenges, because we as human beings are inherently selfish. And so any healthy, thriving relationship is a two-way street of grace and forgiveness and love and selflessness. Any healthy relationship needs to live out this 1 Peter 4.8 principle, above all, keeping uh, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Um, but then as I think about, we're, in, we're here today to worship the, the living God. What about our love relationship with him? Because in our human relationships, both sides are flawed. Both sides introduce selfishness and foolishness to the equation. But God's love is flawless. His love is perfect. His love is perfect at all times. We're fickle and we're self-centered in how we love, but not God. God's love perfectly, perfectly reflects his perfect loving character. And even when we reject him, when we rebel against him, when we commit infidelity against God... His love for us remains. I'm reminded of what Paul writes in Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. He says, "For and this speaks to the, to the loving character of our God. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. This is love. This is an amazing love. While we rejected him and committed infidelity against him and stiff-armed him and turned to idols and turned away from him, while we were yet sinning, God still chose to love us. In his gracious love, the Lord does not give up on humanity. And so our text today is many things. And there are so many interesting conversations we could have about the doctrines that have their connection back to these last four verses of chapter 3 of Genesis. We're going to get into a little bit of that. We're going to talk a little bit about the theological implications of these four verses. But on one level, perhaps the most important level for us today, this, these four verses are a picture of God's gracious love. And they're a picture of how our God does not give up on humanity. Our love is fickle. Our love is temperamental. Our love is conditional and selfish, not so with God. His love is eternal. It's unchanging. It's gracious. It's patient. It's steadfast. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And so in his gracious love, the Lord does not give up on us. So would you look again with me back at our text? I want you to remember a little bit of what we covered last week. These four hard words of judgment that God spoke over Adam and Eve, but there was this word of hope in the middle of it. Pain in childbirth, conflict in marriage, pain in labor, death. But there was a seed who would crush the head of the serpent, who would redeem humanity. There was hope. Do you remember Adam's response to these hard words of judgment that God spoke over them? Verses 17 through 19, God speaks hard judgment. Or 16 through 19, hard judgment. But then in verse 20, do you remember Adam's response? He calls his wife, he names her Eve because she was the mother of all living. I mean, after being told that he would die and that his wife would die, after God said, Adam, you are dust and to dust you shall return, Adam didn't name his wife dust, didn't name her toil, didn't name her pain, didn't name her conflict, he named her life. It's incredible. It's an act of faith. Adam knew that death did not have the final word, but life did. 
And so he named his wife Life, Life Giver. And so as we pick up our text here in verse 21, we see now God, in response to this declaration of faith that we see from Adam in verse 20, we see God responding, and I think his tone has changed here. There seems to be a different tone or a different way in which he approaches Adam. Look again with me at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Let's read the rest of the text. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take hold of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now remember with me, if you will, who the original audience was of Genesis. It was the people Israel. It was the chosen people of God who would have received Genesis, the first audience to receive these written words. They were newly freed from Egyptian slavery. They were in the desert. Moses was mediating on their behalf a new covenant between them and this God who they're learning about in the first pages of Genesis. And as they were coming to understand the terms of this covenant that was, that was taking place at Mount Sinai, we call this the Sinai Covenant, they would have been receiving this revelation that we're reading today. This amazing revelation about their ancestors, about who the Creator was, about where sin and suffering came from, about who this God was that they were covenanting with. This would have been an amazing thing that they would have been learning here in the first pages of Scripture. And as they would have been receiving God's law through Moses in the Sinai Covenant, as they built the tabernacle, a tent of meeting, a place with which God would dwell in their midst, as they instituted a sacrificial system involving the blood of animals, these four verses at the end of chapter 3 would have offered insight into the very heart of the God who they were covenanting with. The very heart of the God who was dwelling in their presence, a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, in the Holy of Holies. It would have given them insight into the role of priests as the mediator between God and man. It would have given them insight into the sacrificial system of the Sinai Covenant. These four verses would help them understand the very heart of God. He is a gracious and loving God, and he does not give up on humanity. Verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. The Lord God made, and he clothed. God is working in verse 21. Genesis began with God working. For six days, God worked. And on the seventh day, after his work of creation was complete, God rested. And all the things that he had created were beautiful and they were very good. But now, because of the fall, there yet again is more work for God to do. Right here in verse 21, we see God getting to work. Can you imagine Adam and Eve pathetically clothed with these fig loincloths? But rather than make them stand there in their shame, in his presence, rather than watch Adam and Eve squirm and try to cover and hide behind leaves, God shows care for Adam and Eve. He shows concern. He shows love for them in providing suitable coverings. Here's the first thing I want you to write down, if you haven't already. In his gracious love, the Lord God provides covering for Adam and Eve. In his gracious love, the Lord God provides covering for Adam and Eve. Right there in verse 21. See, apart from God's help, when they were hiding in the trees, they had crudely fashioned some coverings made of these, these leaves. But they were inadequate. Even with these loincloths, their shame was still on full display. So God, in his grace, chose to provide for them an appropriate covering. Rather than leave them with these, these man-made loincloths plucked from a still-living tree, 
the Lord God chose instead to take the skins, presumably from an animal that had to die, and fashion suitable coverings for the man and the woman. I was introduced to a, to a, a preacher I'd never heard of before this week. His name was, was Marcus Dodds. He was a 19th century Scottish preacher and scholar. He was brilliant by all accounts. Listen to what he had to say about Adam and Eve's coverings. It is also to be remarked that the clothing which God provided was in itself different from what the man had thought of. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God depraved an animal of life that the, sh- that the shame of his creatures might be relieved. This was the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. See, to us, life is cheap and death is familiar, but to Adam, he would have recognized death as the punishment of sin. Death was so early, was, death was to early man a sign of God's anger. And he had to learn that sin could be covered not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by, but only by pain and blood. God's decision to clothe the man and the woman was a gracious act. And he did so in response to their shame-inducing, naked-noticing sin. A far cry from loincloths, God made them skin garments. This Hebrew word is ketoneth. It, it means tunic. It's like a long garment that goes between the ankles and the knees all the way up to the neck. Uh, this is a, a covering of the entire body. It, it would have been incredibly useful in the harsh reality of the wilderness Adam and Eve were about to experience as they get casted out of the garden. Though the text doesn't explicitly say that God sacrificed an animal to make these garments of skins, the implication here is that an animal had to die in order for the skins to be used for these garments. So so that would have been a hide that would have been taken from an animal to fashion these clothes. And if you think about it, if that's true, if an animal had to die here, then it's very likely that the first physical death we see in all of Scripture takes place right here in verse 21. The first time we see the shedding of blood takes place right here as suitable coverings were fashioned for Adam and Eve to cover up their shame. And it was the Lord God who made these coverings. It would have been the Lord God who sacrificed an animal for the benefit of Adam and Eve as he seeks to provide coverings for his image-bearing Adam and Eve. And as I thought about this, would this have been the first time Adam and Eve saw blood? Would this have been the first time they experienced death? Can you imagine for Adam and Eve the first experiences of seeing blood? What they would have thought? I mean, it could have been, and it should have been, them who died. They rebelled against the command of God. Their offense was the offense that carried with it a death sentence. But yet in this moment, as they watched this animal die, as they watched blood being shed, instead of them, what would have witnessing this done to their hearts and minds? How would they have thought about that? Would they have realized that it was their rebellion that led to the shedding of the blood of another? Dodds, this Scottish preacher, went on to write, From the first sin to the last, the track of the sinner is marked with blood. In the garden on that day, it was made apparent that sin was a real and deep evil and that by no easy and cheap process could the sinner be restored. And we cannot rise above sin's consequences save the intervention of God himself. And guess what? God continues to provide coverings for his image bearers to this day. As we gather in this place, in his gracious love, God still provides for you and for me. God's provision is a common grace 
that cover, a common grace covering that extends to all, to the believer and unbeliever alike. This is common grace. It's, it's, it's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, for he, God, makes the sun to rise on evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The common grace of God is a benefit to believers and unbelievers alike. It's everywhere we look, the common grace of God, the air we breathe, the lungs we breathe air with, the food that we eat, the rain that nourishes the soil, the shelter over our head. God's common grace is everywhere. James writes that every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. But to the elect, to those that will be found in Christ, to those who have trusted Jesus as Savior, God's provision, his covering is not a common grace, it's a saving grace. It is the very specific saving grace of God. One commentator notes that the first physical death should have been the man and his wife. But the first physical death was an animal. This is a shadow of the reality that God would someday kill a substitute to redeem sinners. God's act of covering grace in the Garden of Eden reminds us of God's act of covering grace in and through his son, Jesus Christ. It was Christ who offers you and me the hope of having our sin and our shame forever covered. Listen to what Paul says to the Ephesian church, chapter 4, verses 22 through 24. He says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through, through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self, created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Through Christ, we put on a new self. The righteousness of Christ covers us and our shame. To the Corinthians, Paul simply said, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God is still in the act of covering his people who are overwhelmed with shame, but he covers us in his righteousness. In his gracious love, the Lord God doesn't give up on humanity. We're reminded that God still provides coverings to this day for you and for me. Let's go back to the text. Look at verses 21 through 23. The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also hold of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Someone this week that I was reading and studying said that, Verse 22 records a divine deliberation. God is com communicating within the Godhead. He's, he's communicating with himself. He's in conversation. It's a divine dialogue. And, and he's talking about how mankind had come to the understanding of the knowledge of good and evil. Now that's exactly what the serpent had promised would happen. The, God even said they, they, they become like one of us. God said about, about Adam and Eve in their consumption of this forbidden fruit. Their eyes were opened and, and they in a certain sense did in fact become like God. But the couple's likeness to God was not glorious like God. It was shameful. It was disgraceful. And did you notice how the Lord God kind of seems to stop the conversation mid-sentence? Behold, he says, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then he just stops talking. One commentator notices this and says, God doesn't finish the sentence. For the man to live forever in his sinful condition is an unbearable thought for God. And God must waste no time in preventing it. And so it's God's grace. It's God's grace that he, he then casts Adam and his wife out of the garden. But he doesn't send them out of the garden empty-handed. He sends them out to work the ground from which it was taken. 
Now, now God prevents Adam and Eve from having access to the tree of life, but he doesn't just cast them out in the darkness of the wilderness to, to just to die helplessly. They still have work to do. Work is still a part of what it means to be human. It's still a blessing of God. It's just now that the soil is cursed and the work is frustrated. And Adam and Eve aren't going to go out there and starve to death. God has given them a work to do and a soil that will produce food for them. Yes, by the sweat of their face. Yes, through thorns and thistles. But he is still providing for them. And the soil will produce food for them for the limited years that they will draw breath. So here's the second thing I'd encourage you to write down. In his gracious love, the Lord God prevents Adam and Eve from living forever. In his gracious love, the Lord prevents them from living forever. When Adam and Eve chose to eat this this fruit from this forbidden tree, they they rebelled against God. They did the very thing God told them not to do. In effect, in doing this act, Adam and Eve declared independence from God. They wanted moral autonomy. They didn't want God to tell them how to think. They wanted to be the ones that decided what is good and evil, not God. They wanted to be the ones to decide what was right, what was wrong, not God. They wanted independence from God. They wanted moral autonomy from God. One writer makes this observation. I think this is profound. Even though the human quest to be like God was obtained, the goal itself proved to be undesirable. The man and the woman who had been created to be like God in the beginning now found themselves after the fall curiously like God, but no longer with God in the garden. And here's here's the part I found profound. The author has shown that human happiness does not consist of being like God, but rather being with God and enjoying the blessings of his presence. As a result of the rebellion, they fell under the judgment of God. As God said, you are of dust, and to dust you shall return. And their rebellion carried the sentence of death. We've covered this. They're going to die. And so when our text begins here, they are standing before God. They are freshly clothed in a tunic handmade by God. They're still in the garden. They're near the tree of life, and yet they are dead. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. All Adam and Eve can do at this point is die. And if they were to remain in the garden with the tree of life, it appears as if what God is saying is they could, as dead people, eaten still from the tree of life. And as one preacher puts it, in so doing, they would have perpetuated their bodily existence indefinitely. And the garden would have become a hell on earth populated with the undying dead, forever living, forever dead. What a horrendous thought. Remember, for for the man to live forever in his sinful condition is an unbearable thought, and God wasted no time in preventing it. And so in his grace, God prevents Adam and Eve from living forever. He bars them from the garden, and he prevents them from having access to the tree of life. This is God's gracious act. This is God loving them well. It's a hard concept for us to map our mind around. God is preventing access to the tree of life? Don't you think God would want them to have access to the tree of life? But no, 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 not in their death. God's not interested in in the undying dead living forever, but forever dead. And so now as a result, as we talked about a few weeks ago, death is now a part of the human experience. It's a part of what it means to be human. We all confront the reality of death. I mean, just this week, I I attended the the funeral of of a friend's father who passed away unexpectedly. I had a conversation with a mother whose son died tragically. I had a conversation with a family who was grappling with a terminal diagnosis of a child. Unfortunately, death is part of what it means to be human. And God, in our text, assured that death will be passed on to all of humanity as a part of his just and righteous judgment against Adam. But we have hope in Jesus. Because for those of us that are in Christ, 
Yes, we, we will die one day, but we have the hope of living with him forever. And, and all of us in this room are going to taste physical death unless Jesus returns before we physically die. And as we think about death and as we talk about death, it just reminds me of some of the pastoral conversations we've had around the hub as we talk about our people. Uh, we sit as shepherding elders. Uh, every month we sit to train as shepherding elders. And, and one of the questions we ask is shepherd. Now, these are the men at Heritage that are shepherding our, our covenant members. And one of the questions we ask at every shepherding elder meeting is, what are, what are you seeing? As, as, you, as you engage in the life of the people of our church, what are some of the pastoral concerns that you're seeing? What are the things that are, what's the dust that's being kicked up in people's lives? And last week, Pastor Mitch, our, our worship pastor and our senior high pastor, he said, he just, they said, depression and anxiety is rampant. Not sure if it's increased because of COVID, but among youth culture, and statistics bear this out, depression and anxiety is rampant. And then as some of us that work more with adults, we are all like, yeah, I'm seeing that a lot in my people right now. And, and, and kind of a close cousin to depression and anxiety can often be suicidal ideation. And this is a real challenge that confronts our culture, and it's not, and we're as Christians and in the church, we're not immune from the darkness of this. And as I think about the two dangers when it comes to this reality of our pending death, one of the big dangers we can fall into is obsessing with death, to thinking about death, to playing the thoughts of death through our mind. I've been around suicide so much in my life. I've seen it in my family. I've sat with so many families who've, who've lived through the horrors of suicide. And, and sometimes we can find ourselves just lowering our focus and looking only at the darkness in front of us. And, and in so doing, we ignore the truth that we have a God who's overcome death, that we have an eternal hope in Christ. It's not healthy to obsess over death. And then there's another danger that we have when it comes to this issue of death is we just we, we refuse to engage with it. We refuse to consider that our days are numbered. We refuse to think about the fact that we are aging and slowly dying. And so we make an idol out of living. We make an idol out of our mortal existence. I mean, there are billion-dollar industries that are, that are supported by people's quest to, to turn back the hands of time and deny the reality of their eventual death. But for those of us that are in Christ, we have this tremendous hope. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord, Romans 6.23. As we look back at our text, perhaps a question you might have also is, is, is we, you know, talked about the fantastical elements of our text today, and we, we hear the phrase, the tree of life. Maybe you thought of this, maybe you didn't, but have you ever just wondered, like, what, what actually is the tree of life? What, what is this thing? I mean, we're first introduced to the tree of life in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, and about the ground the Lord God made it to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree that was in the midst of the garden was the tree of life. And also in the midst of the garden was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tim Mackey, who, who does the Bible Project, he had this to say about the tree of life. He said, the tree of life represents God's own unique life and creative power that is made available to others. The book of Proverbs talks often about the tree of life uh, through this kind of symbolic imagery. The tree of life is wisdom and understanding. The tree of life is the fruit of righteousness. The tree of life is fulfilled desire. It's a gentle tongue. And before Adam and Eve rebelled, they had unbridled access to the tree of life. And God actually commanded them to eat of all the trees of the garden, which included the tree of life, forbid them to, only eat from, to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, and somehow, someway, partaking of this tree was also partaking with God. And then as, we, as students of the Scripture, when we read of the new heavens and the new earth that awaits all of God's elect, 
all those who have trusted in Christ, all those who are saved and redeemed and born again, one day we will, in the presence of God, in the new heavens and the new earth, in a restored garden, in, in, in the heavenly garden, we will again partake of the fruit of the tree of life. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus says, the one who con- to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In chapter 22 of of Revelation, the final chapter of the Bible, we read that blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. So for Adam and Eve here in verse 22 and 23, the result of their rebellion is death. So God prevents access to the tree of life. The Lord God graciously sends them out of the garden, preventing them from living forever, from this horror of an eternity existing as the undying dead, living forever but dead forever. And as we look at what God is doing here, he is saying to sin, the corrupting power that you have, sin, the ability to to corrupt and disrupt, he puts limits on it. God has the power to, to limit the corrosive, cancerous, corrupting effect of sin. By preventing Adam and Eve from partaking of the tree of life, in effect, the Lord God is drawing a boundary, and he's saying to sin, here's where I'll allow you to go, but I am the Lord God, and here's where you will not go. And I'm reminded of what Paul writes in Romans 8 about the love of God being greater than any other thing. Paul writes, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither light nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We see the love of God on display in Genesis chapter 3. In his gracious love, the Lord God does not give up on humanity. He could have wiped Adam and Eve off the planet. He could have said, you rebelled against me, done. He could have flicked planet earth into the sun, it could have been over. But he's gracious. And in his gracious love, he does not give up on humanity. He does not give up on you. And he does not give up on me. Finally, we look at verse 24. We read that the man, that he drove the man uh, out of the garden, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a flaming sword and that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Look at the harsh details contained in this final verse. We see God driving them out. We see a flame, a sword. We see in every way that the, the way back is blocked. Every detail actively excludes Adam and Eve from ever granting access to the Garden of Eden again. And so clearly God is saying to Adam and Eve, with, 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 there's no nuance here. He's saying you're never going to be able to get back to the Garden of Eden. No matter how hard Adam and Eve tried, they are never going to get back it was impossible. And here's the final thing I want you to, to see in our, in our notes today. In his gracious love, the Lord God prohibits them from returning to the garden. In his gracious love, the Lord God prohibits Adam and Eve from returning to the garden. Why? Why does God prohibit them from accessing the garden? I mean, could it be that these these two people that had a God delusion that led them to rebel against God, could it be that God was reminding them helping them to understand that they could not save themselves. No matter how hard they tried, they could not save themselves. They were very ungodlike in this way. There's another way that God was reemphasizing that they were subject to his will and his ways. And there's some interesting wordplay between chapter 2 and chapter 3 here. Chapter 2, before sin, as Adam is existing in the perfect, uh, the unity, the harmony of the garden, the Lord, it says in in chapter 2, verse 15, that the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and keep it. Those two words, work it and keep it, are then repeated here in chapter 3 in the last few verses. 
Adam is now forced to work the cursed ground. Before the sin, he worked the blessed ground in the presence of God, and now because of the fall, he works the cursed ground apart from the presence of God. Before the fall, he was to keep the garden. He was to guard it. But now because of the fall, he's cast out of the garden, and a cherubim has been placed to keep it and to guard it because Adam failed mightily at his duty. God graciously put limits on Adam and Eve. He, he, he taught them that they are not God. He drove them to their knees and drove them out of the garden to remind them there is only one who bears the name Lord God, and it is him. Before the fall, the task of working the ground and guarding the garden was a joyous endeavor. But now the task of guarding the garden is not given to Adam but to the cherubim. It's the first time we see this word mentioned in the Bible. We see it more later on, especially in Exodus, and we start seeing about the tabernacle and the temple. But cherubim, plural, or cherub, singular, were these majestic, these powerful, angelic, fantastical beings. They were involved in the worship and praise of God. They served the purpose of magnifying the holiness and the power of God. They also serve as this visible reminder to the people of God of the majesty and glory of God. And we see this cherubim, these, these angels with these swords that are blocking the way, guarding the garden, protecting it. Now this garden, don't forget, was the original dwelling place of God among mankind. This would have been very interesting for the original audience to hear of this, this language of cherubim being guarding access to the presence of God in his garden. Because as the Old Testament unfolds, as God is establishing his covenant with his people, we begin to see lots of imagery of cherubim in the tabernacle and in these instruments that are used for worship. In the dwelling place of God among his people in the book of Exodus and beyond, God dwells with his people in the Holy of Holies in the tent of meeting. And all around the Holy of Holies, there's images of cherubim. For example, in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant which was this chest or this box this, made by the specifications of God. It was covered in gold. And inside the, the, the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's staff that sprouted. It was a jar of gold that contained manna. And it was the tablets of the law were in the side of the Ark of the Covenant. This was behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies. And on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was a golden lid. On that lid were two statues of cherubim with outstretched wings, guarding and protecting the, the Ark of the Covenant. And above the wings of the, of the cherubim in the Holy of Holies was called the mercy seat, the judgment seat of God in the presence of his people on planet Earth. And we see angels, or we see cherubim connected to the presence of God. And then there was this curtain. Pastor Jeremy talked about this three weeks ago. We read in Exodus chapter 36, I think, where, where the, 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 the instructions were given. Chapter, yeah, where instructions were given to, to create this curtain that would, that would separate, this heavy, thick curtain that would separate the Holy of Holies from the rest of the people. And, and we see that on this curtain, it was, it was dis, uh, decreed by God that it would be intricately, um, th there would be artwork on the curtain of, I'm trying to think of the word, I can't think of the word I'm thinking of, but th there's cherubim that were on the curtain, that were guarding the Holy of Holies, Intric intricately and beautifully and artistically woven into this curtain. So the people of God who are hearing that there's a cherubim placed outside the garden to prevent people from having access to the dwelling place of God, they're now looking at the Holy of Holies in their presence. They're like, wait a second. There's cherubim in the Holy of Holies with the, guarding the mercy seat of God. There's this curtain preventing me from having access to God with cherubim on it. 
And it would have made sense to them. This would have informed this covenant that they were now establishing with God. But for you and I, where we exist in salvation history on the other side of the cross, as we look back through the cross, as we look back at what God is saying here, and we think of that curtain. Do you remember the day that Jesus died, what happened? As he's hanging on a cross, as he's receiving the torture and the punishment and the wrath of God for your sins and my sins, he cries out, it is finished. And in Mark chapter 15, we read that Jesus uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We see these connections. It's incredible. God puts a cherubim to guard the garden so people can have access to God. He, he, he creates a dwelling place among his people through the Sinai covenant, but it's still guarded by a cherubim through this curtain. And then Jesus comes, and he does all the work necessary. He, he absorbs all the wrath that humankind deserves. And in his, in his work on the cross... No longer is there this sin barrier between God and man, and the curtain is torn. Now God is made available to us. We see this amazing compassion of God in his gracious love. He does not give up on humanity. Through Christ, you and I have access to the presence of God. The curtain has been torn. Christ has taken the curse from us. He has given us his righteousness. He has satisfied the justice of God. This is what he came to do. Listen to the words of the Apostle John concerning the coming of Christ. John writes, The Word became flesh, Jesus became flesh, God became flesh, and dwelt among us. The word dwell in John 1.14 here is literally means the word tabernacled. Jesus came and he tabernacled with his people. He came to remove the barrier that prohibited people from dwelling with God. For Adam and for Eve and for us, there's no going back to the garden. But through Christ, the hope of the new heavens and the new earth is the reality that lies ahead for all who are going to be found in Christ. This is our great hope. Eden restored, a heavenly garden awaits those who have trusted in Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples as they were worried about him leaving? John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. God's heart, his compassionate, gracious, loving heart is to dwell with those he loves. And so what is this place like? What is this place of hope like, this new heavens and this new earth that is in the future for all of God's elect? I just want to read a little excerpt from Revelation 22, the first five verses of Revelation 22. It gives us a little snapshot of what this place is like, this hope, this new garden that, that, that awaits those who have trusted in Christ. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed there, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
What a beautiful picture of the hope that awaits God's elect. In his gracious love, the Lord God does not give up on humanity. He provides covering. He prevents us from, from, from having things that would confuse us about who God really is. And he prohibits Adam and Eve from returning to the garden, but in so doing, he creates a hope, an anticipatory hope in the heart of his people that one day Eden will be restored. Listen, you're in a love story. I'm in a love story. It's the greatest love story ever told. God pursues you, and he loves you, and he shows you his grace. He provides for you. And today, if, if, if you've never just paused and considered the amazing way our God provides for you, just pause and consider that in his tremendous love for you, the way in which he provides for you, the family, the support, the, the blessings of life that are everywhere you turn, in his love for you, God has put limits on you. He doesn't want you to be confused and think that you are like a God. There is one God. And so God, in his grace at times, he puts limits into our lives that drive us to our knees to remind us of who God is. And he's put, numbers of our, he's put a number on our days. And maybe for you today, as you think about this love story, as you think about this gracious love of God, maybe what God wants to bring to your remembrance is that your days are numbered. Are your days counting? Are you falling in the trap of either obsessing over death or never considering the reality that your days are numbered? You only have so many breaths that God has given you to draw. Are they counting for something? And God has prepared a place for you. He's prepared a place for all who trust in him. It's a very, very real hope. Can you just imagine that day when death will be no more? Do you ever just ache for that day when the madness of a fallen world just stops? The earth no longer groans. We no longer groan, but God redeems, restores, renews, make all things new, and we stand in his presence. Access to the tree of life, unbridled relationship with God. In his gracious love, the Lord God provides covering for Adam and Eve. He prevents them from living forever. And he prohibits them from returning to the garden. In his gracious love, the Lord God does not give up on humanity. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your word today. God, I'm thankful that you are a God who makes himself known. And God, you invite us to, to be known by you and to know you. God, I'm thankful as we look back in the pages of Scripture, as we look here at the book of Genesis, God, we are reminded uh, of, of the incredible, gracious, and loving way in which you act towards humanity and the gracious and kind and, and, and loving way you act towards us. So God, today, by the power of your Spirit today, would you open our eyes to your love for us, God? And for those of us that are to be found in Christ today, God, would this just inform our worship, God, as we look at the way you have cared for us and loved us and pursued us, God, may that just, may we, may we lift our voices all the more. May we lift our hearts all the more. May we lift our hands all the more and give ourselves back to you as an act of worship. God, for those who, of us who are, are, are stumbling and clawing in the darkness of the wilderness apart from you, trying to be our own gods, trying to make our own way, God, would you remind us in this moment that there is one God? There's a loving, gracious God. You've made yourself known to us in and through your son, Jesus. On the cross, you have done everything necessary to remove the barrier preventing us from knowing you and being known by you, being loved by you, forgiven by you. God, would you open the eyes of all today to that truth? God, would you put a prayer in our heart, a prayer of faith to you that trusts in you, that declares that, Jesus, you are the son of the living God. You have bore our sins upon the cross. You have overcome sin and death. You're alive today. And by confessing you with our mouth and believing you with our heart, we will be saved. God, have your way with our church. Have your way with us. May we worship you.